1: Welcome to the Tax Alpha Solutions Podcast, hosted by Matt Chansey. Matt is a tax consultant, author, and certified financial planner with almost two decades helping his clients grow their net worth. On the show, Matt brings together an array of specialists to share with you their experience and success along with strategies of the 1%. Matt Chancy is with Coastal One, member FINRA SIPC. And now, here's your
0: host, Matt Chancy. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Matt Chancy, and we're here today on the Tax Alpha podcast. And today we have a special guest. It's uh, Terry Duncan. Terry is a serial entrepreneur with more than 40 years of business ownership and management experience. Beginning with the launch of his Nintendo distributorship in 1981, the year that Donkey Kong forever changed the world, The sale of that business to pursue his law degree and CPA certification, Terry then pivoted to become a leading business succession and family legacy planning advisor in the U.S. In 2011, Terry launched a litigation fund and has grown a leading mass tort uh, law firm. He is the founding member of the Duncan Law Firm and is founder and CEO of the Mass Tort Institute. Well, Terry, pleasure to meet you and thanks for being on today. Thanks, Matt. Really happy to be with you. Absolutely. So I love how you referenced all the way back in the Nintendo, like the Donkey Kong, because clearly if you might not remember when all that started, but there's nobody forgetting Donkey Kong. Nobody would forget that. You know, it it was an interesting ride, because I know know, we're going to focus
1: today on businesses and scaling and growth. Uh, I started that business in June of 1981. Nobody had ever even heard of Nintendo. Nintendo at that time was the largest playing card manufacturer in Japan. Uh, but they had made the decision they wanted to come into the video game industry make long story very short I had actually entered I, I decided wanted to potentially get into the video game uh, distribution business uh, I actually had been in the valve business I was the national sales manager of valve company so I, I understood industrial distribution and distribution pretty well and uh, anyway I interviewed several companies met two gentlemen who actually had the national uh, franchise rights of uh, for Nintendo for the entire U.S. Those guys, by the way, each made a couple of hundred million bucks <laughs> yeah. based on those uh, distribution rights. In any event, met them at a conference in New Orleans. Uh, we got along real well and they said, go back to Houston and put $100,000 in the bank and start the business and we'll give you the exclusive territory. So I did. And uh, that was June of 81. The first game came out. It was called Radar Scope. Nobody's ever heard of Radar Scope and you never will. Uh, we bought like 20 units, and I think five of them are still collecting dust somewhere. We couldn't sell them. And then in August, Donkey Kong came out. And for the next five months, we sold about um, something like 500 units. And anyway, in 1982, which was my first year and a half in business, first full year of business, we did $9.8 million in revenue, made 2000000 million pre-tax, wrote a check to Uncle Sam for a $1 million. <laughs> so that was a lot of money in those days. And, uh, you know, it's unbelievable right. But frankly, I was more of a CFO than I was a business owner because to take 100000 of capital, then got a $250,000 line of credit at the bank and partly that into $10 million of revenue. And Nintendo did not give terms. You had to wire the money to their bank account before they would put the game on a freighter in Yokohama, Japan, and send them to Seattle. Then you had to get them off the boat onto a truck and, and uh, truck them across the country. So you know, and dude, we didn't have computers then. So we're tracking all this by hand and we're keeping, you know, track of orders and money coming in and collecting money from people. So it was a crazy time. I mean, you know, again, 10 million of revenue for a small business back then was a lot, a lot of money. So, you know, we, we struck pay dirt. 1983, the, you know, bottom fell out of that industry. I knew it was going to, and I, I actually had diversified into the movie rental business. We actually had 20% market share in Houston at the time. And this is pre blockbuster, you know, pre all of that. But I, I hated the retail business. And I also realized you're going to have to go really big or go home. I mean, it was going to take millions of capital and go to build a, a national footprint. And so I, I sold those businesses and, that, and then I went to law school, decided that I need to learn a little more. So I went to law school and be, became a CPA along the way. I like numbers more than I do <laughs> legalese. And, uh, you know, so that was kind of my journey. And then coming out of that, I um, went to work for a CPA firm. At the time, you had to practice as, a, as an accountant for a year before you'd get your CPA certification. So that was actually 1986, which was the year – the current tax code we still work off of was introduced, you know, so here we are 36 years later working off the same kludgy tax code, you know, tax reform act of 86. But I was, when I was finishing up law school, I actually took like 33 hours of tax courses, which is more than what you need usually to get an LLM in tax. So, I mean, I was up to speed on the tax reform act when it came out. And uh, anyway, I got hooked up. uh, I did, nobody in the CPA firm wanted to deal with estate planning and we had some elderly clients. So I kind of took that on and I really enjoyed that. And so when I came out of a law school, um, I got paired up with a guy who came out of the insurance industry and we got a consulting contract with Prudential insurance company to, uh, to scale in the national estate planning practice. And now every insurance company does that, but we were the predecessor to the advanced estate planning groups that you now see in all the insurance companies around the country you know, so we did. So we were traveling all over the country, working with Prudential's highest net worth, most affluent clients coming out of the real estate department, coming out of proof financial and proof securities. And, uh, you know, it was a lot of fun. I mean, I worked with members of, you know, many people who are on the Forbes 400 list today, as well as some that were back then. So you know, it was a fun ride. And I did that for 20 years, really enjoyed it. But then, you know, I get to be a little older and then, 9/11 comes along and TSA, and I was like, got tired of being on the airplanes. And, you know, it, 20 years was long enough, and so I pivoted, and you know, had invested with some clients along the way, and and had had fun with some of that. But I decided it was time for a for a third career. So, uh, got into what we call the mass tort arena, which is uh, we'll talk about as we go through the conversation today. But that's. That's kind of the arc of what my life has been as it relates to business. But so I've always been a serial entrepreneur, always love seeing what people are doing, love reading books and listening to other people's wisdom. And um, not that
0: I have much to offer, but whatever I can share, I'm, I'm happy to do today. (laughs) <laughs> well, constantly improving and self-educating and looking for the new opportunity. You know, I think those are those are great characteristics of, of business owners, you know, um, self-educated, self-motivated, constantly want to be learning and willing to take on an acceptable level of risk, right? Because there is no risk-free transaction out there, you know, There's so... Not. Uh, <laughs> there's always black swans. <laughs> always black swans. That's what, that's what I tell people. They say, what's the commonality with a bunch of the clients that you work with? I say, well, they all have some element of a risk-based appetite, right? It's not that their education's the same, their age is the same, their background or anything, but they all understand that it's not about shooting for zero risk. It's, is the juice worth the squeeze? And if I can make that calculated risk make sense, then maybe there's an opportunity underneath that, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely right. You know, I mean, the one thing, I guess the one common thing about what I've tried to do in my businesses, you know, there's there's a lot of intermediate stages and ways you could go in your business career. But one of the things I decided to do is always like finding opportunities where you could leverage a smaller amount of capital or moderate amount of capital and really turn it into a you know, really compelling opportunity as opposed to like, you know, real estate or building office buildings or doing you know, other types of developments, or, or even, you know, manufacturing companies that just have huge, uh, you know, capital based structures that they have to have in order to go build the widgets and all of that. So, you know, when times are booming, when you're in, you know, say the manufacturing sector, you can crush it, but boy, when things slow down, it, you know, you can't get rid of those those plants and uh, (laughs) those hard assets are, you know, hard to, Get off the balance sheet, you know. So I've always tried to be a lot more nimble and, and lean um, in terms of what we do and the way we, we go about scaling our business. To your point, you know, one of my, you know, I don't know how many people really have read the book, you know, the Blue Ocean, uh, but you know, a couple of professors wrote it. It's actually pretty intense business if you read the whole thing, you know. But I mean, but the takeaway is that you know we're all. You know, looking for those opportunities where there's really nobody else you know fishing that ocean and where you've got you know tremendous opportunity we're actually working on one of those right now in, in our industry in that we're working with a program that's helping veterans you know the VA doesn't really acknowledge this program uh, very effectively and so we're out communicating it to vets and, and helping them get some benefits that they're entitled to that they don't particularly know about So, you know, so to your point, yeah, we're always trying to learn and grow and, you know, learn from other people's successes and failures, both. But, um, you know, business is uh, always going somewhere different and new. I mean, it's never one thing we can all count on is it's never going to be the same tomorrow that it was today or
0: yesterday. (laughs) You've always got to innovate and create and, and look to the future. Very true. Very true. I I think we we try to mimic other people's successes, but it's hard to, because we really, we don't learn, we learn through failures. We learn through the trial and error, the iterative process. So we have to personally experience a lot of those failures to get to the successes, but we see other people's successes and go, Hey, maybe that's a a target worthy of shooting at, right? Maybe that's a, a goal worth shooting at. You said a couple of interesting things, I made some notes. So number one, you like to look for outsized returns opportunities, and I agree with you, right? And every business has a barrier to entry and some of it's capital, right? And others of it is IP, intellectual property, right? Because I imagine what you did later, even though it wasn't as capital intensive as starting a manufacturing company or a big real estate program, if you didn't know what you knew and have the intellectual bandwidth to process it, then with or without capital, it doesn't create the outsized return opportunity you're looking for. No, that's exactly right. You know, and you know, from my perspective,
1: as we all know, and you know, over the last 20 years, this has become, you know, more and more prevalent. People pay attention to it, but you know, it's the human capital element. You know, one of the things that I think is really, really important. One of the things I think you've got to make the decision is, especially in today's society, more than yesterday or, or 20 years ago. I mean, you know, there's a time in our society where people were grateful to show up and get a paycheck and you know, put their nine to five in or eight to five. And, you know, frankly, those days are <laughs> not nearly as prevalent. You know, what drives the younger generations is different than what drove my generation and what then what drove your generation. And so, you know, you've got to make sure that your enterprise uh, first of all, I think has a compelling vision, something that people would want to buy into and spend their time and, and effort doing, especially the millennials. You know, they really, really want to feel like they're engaged in something that's going to make a difference. And uh, like I said, 20 years ago, people just were happy to get a, have a job and get a paycheck and go home and be with their family, and do that sort of thing. But, yeah, they, now everybody, you know, of the younger generation, I mean, they want to make their mark, which is awesome. I mean, I think that's great. But. It also then is incumbent upon a business owner to make sure that they've really got a vision and leadership and the follow through that's consistent with whatever your messaging is, because, uh, you know, you'll get called out real quickly <laughs> if, if what you have on the board isn't really the way you're acting. So yeah. it's being consistent in a leadership uh, platform, I think, is more important today than ever.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. And I, and it's the human capital part has gotten really complicated because not everybody is driven by money or success. You know, everybody has a different driver. You know, uh, on that topic, I read a book recently in the past few months called Drive. And, yeah. um, you know, it just kind of talks about, you know, once people, I guess if you kind of look at it from the, the Maslow's hierarchy standpoint, say, and everybody's different, but once you take care of those fundamental needs, it, it frees up people to lean into their creativity and the other things that make them great, but you have to cover those basic needs in life for them. And it's not necessarily making an unlimited amount of money. It's like, hey, I need money to do what I need to do for my family. But once that's covered, just look I need to do these other things that I enjoy that I'm interested in. And then that's what brings out the best human capital, the best employee version of myself, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. And you know, to your point, you know, one of the things we try to do in our enterprise is, you know, give give people certainly uh all the tools and information they need to be successful. But also, you know, we like to have a communicative loop so that we're getting feedback from them about what's working. What do they see from our clients that they need that maybe we're not uh, performing as well as we would want to be. And so, you know, because look, the best indicator is what your clients are saying about you and your firm and your people. And, um, you know, and if you don't give your you know, certainly you have to put guardrails around employees, but you also, you've got to give them enough latitude and freedom where they, they can, you know, engage with your clients and make sure that, you know, you're being successful in meeting the needs of whatever industry you're in and whatever you're trying to do to serve your clients.
0: Sure. Sure. Well, let's pivot. Let's talk a little bit about what you're doing today. Now that we realize you're in the third act, um, you know, and uh, that doesn't mean it's the, you know, maybe it's a football game and there's a fourth quarter. I don't know. And right now we'll, we're in the third. We'll see. see. Right. We'll see what comes next but right now you've kind of pivoted into the mass tort space so let's talk about I guess number one why did the mass tort space feel like an outsized return opportunity because you've already told us that's how you pick things so uh, how'd you get there so in 2009
1: I had have, have a friend in Southern California that was investing uh, some money in what's called litigation funding and uh, he invested uh, some money with a law firm down Southern Cal that was actually dealing in some of the early PG&E fires. And uh, anyway, we invested as capital there and, and made some nice returns on it. And as I got looking at that industry, I really liked uh, the investment opportunity. But what I didn't like is when you put money behind individual lawsuits, it's very binary. They're either going to win or lose. And so you're either going to make a outsized return or you're going to you know get zero. And so I was interested in the space, but I thought, you know, the better model would be to go get a much more diversified portfolio. And uh, as I started looking into the space, I uh, have a friend here who has a friend who's in the mass store world. And I went and met with him actually in, in 2011 and uh, spent some time. In, and we thought there was an opportunity to go put a, put a fund together and uh, put money out into this space on a diversified portfolio. Uh, portfolio basis. And uh, so anyway, I started out in the funding arena for about four years, I guess. And then in 2015, decided to pivot a little bit in this industry and go ahead and put my law license out and actually be the lawyer rather than advancing money to the law firms. So over the last seven years, we've represented over 15,000 clients and uh, from all over the country. And, you know, we're the bad guys when you watch TV and you see if you've been injured by, you know, Roundup, 3M Combat earplugs, all those sort of things. That's who we are. If you've never heard of this space before, you now know who we are. So, um, you know, so we aggregate a lot of clients in the torts that we think have, uh, have good opportunities. And to your question about the opportunity, you can go in early in a tort and if it doesn't work out well, I won't get off into the legalities of why it would or wouldn't, but if it doesn't work out well, you could have a binary event. But if you're in numbers of different torts, it's just kind of getting, you know, a risk allocation model. Because the good thing is if you're in torts early and, and have a good marketing team doing well for you, you can make a 20x return on your marketing dollars, which is, you know, obviously very very substantive. So it's a fascinating industry. Uh, there's a little bit of a barrier to entry, you know, because first of all, you obviously, if you're going to work directly with clients, you got to have, you know, a law license, uh, you a know, license to practice in a given jurisdiction. And then also, frankly, it takes a fair amount of capital because these cases monetize anywhere over a three to eight year horizon. So this isn't like a personal injury case where a lawyer gets a case and sometime in the next six months to two years, they will either settle it or take it to trial. These these are run through what's called a multi-district litigation process, which is overseen by uh, the federal judicial system. And so it takes, and some of these tours, for instance, like the 3M combat airplug tours, by the way, 3M subsidiary just filed bankruptcy yesterday. I don't know if people know, saw that in the news, but it's around, that. the yeah, it's around these 3M earplug uh, cases. But anyway, there's 230,000 cases filed in that MDL. So some of these, uh, litigations that we get involved, there in are massive. And again, it just, it takes a long time to have that play out through the system. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, there's no easy answers in this industry, which is, you know, one of the reasons I really like it. I mean, if it was cut and dry, I mean, if, Frank, if I wanted to, I'm not saying this is a simple business, but if I wanted a simple business where I knew I could go serve my clients, I'd probably today, truthfully, I, I'd probably go you know, buy a company that's in the trades like plumbing or electrical, whatever, and make sure I have a great team who's going and delivering services to to good to clients because there's always going to be a need for that. I mean, you know, we're we're one of those out outlier businesses that's always trying to see where society's been harmed and is there something we can do to go correct that. I mean, the people that I run around with in this industry are some of the best lawyers on the planet. I mean, they're the guys that go fight these opioid lawsuits, they go, you know, win these roundup trials. And so um, it's really, if you had told me 40 years ago, I, I'd be a plaintiff's lawyer, I would have <laughs> told you you're crazy. You know, but but frankly, the corporate world's changed over the last 30, 40 years. When, when I was a young man, you know, Uh, The pharmaceutical companies and Johnson Johnson and different companies, I mean, frankly, they were really looked upon as, you know, providing great products for uh, for our country and, you know, for our consumers. And they're so busy trying to get things to market and make the money that uh, even things that are very harmful to society, they're willing to continue to sell it. I mean, Roundup being a perfect example of that. I mean, you know, they contend it doesn't cause... uh, that it's not carcinogenic, it doesn't cause cancer. But there are a lot of people who have had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma that have used Roundup. And so it's hard to believe there's not a a causal effect there. So, you know, it's a fascinating industry. There's a lot of hardworking people in it. It's The best analogy I could give for the mass tort world would be it's very similar to making uh, the way they make a movie. Because making a movie, you know, all these experts in there giving traps and crates come together. I mean, you've got the gaffers, the grip guys, you know, know, I mean, on and on and on. And you've got all these people that come together and build a movie. And it's very similar in the mass tort world, because frankly, no one law firm alone probably could take on, you know, Johnson and Johnson or a bear or 3M, whatever. So there's a collaborative of probably less than a thousand law firms in this space. Some as small as one lawyer, some with Hundred lawyers, but in you know in the, in the legal world, that's not a big law firm. You know, I mean, you've got Dentons and some of the firms that are you know thousand plus lawyers. And you know cumulative, we've probably got ten thousand lawyers um, in the plaintiffs bar in our industry. So it's a pretty small community. Uh, we all tend to know one another and and try to collaborate. So you know we're we're friendly enemies. We're I mean, I mean we really aren't enemies because you know we all need to pull together and, and put together the best case we can to to move
0: it forward for our clients. Sure. Well, 20x return on your marketing spend certainly sounds like outsized return. So then the question becomes, how do your, your case selection process, how do you determine what torts that are worth putting your marketing dollars behind? Is there a process for that? Certainly. Yeah.
1: I mean, so you'll get, you know, some scientific experts to, you know, frankly, look at the underlying medical situation and determine if they think, in fact, there's a direct causal effect from a pharmaceutical, uh, you know, if it's a medical device, it's a lot easier in that, you know, if they put a hip in and it turns out that their manufacturing process is making it like they put a metal on metal, uh, in people and and the metal was actually, you know, flaking and coming off inside people's bodies and causing poison. So that's a pretty easy one. Uh, Pharmaceutical becomes a lot more, potentially more difficult. And certainly uh, if it's something uh, centered around cancer or some kind of a debilitating disease, you know, frankly, this, and I'm no expert, but the scientific experts have to determine if they think they could in fact prove up the fact that there's a a direct linkage between that pharmaceutical drug, and then the um, end game of what's uh, transpired. But you know, sometimes it kind of shows itself because one that's getting ready to come up now, give me in our industry is um, uh, similar to the Flint, Michigan water system, uh, Camp Lejeune in North Carolina. They had bad water where a lot of people have gotten cancer and. And they had a lot of uh, stillborn infants and, a, and a just horrible situation over about 30 years. And actually, Congress is getting ready to potentially pass uh, some legislation to open up the statute of limitations. So the people that lived on that base are near it for over 30 days over over about three decades uh, would be able to bring suit to get some um, some damages. So, uh, you know, so that's the latest one that everybody's looking at. And and it's uh as long as somebody has a cancer that's in the, in the list that the government is providing, saying you know here's what we're willing to compensate on, that's a pretty easy one. Then so that's first of all figure out if you think you can in fact make a case that that is going to be uh, compensable. And then the second piece is you know get with the marketing experts and find out you know what it's going to cost them to go find you a client who's really going to be able to go cash a check. <laughs> so sure. and can, frankly that part is really complex and difficult because you have a lot of people going and chasing the same clientele. And so, you know, frankly, over the last eight years, we've had some arrows in our backs learning our, our way along. And in fact, I wrote a book called Mass Torch Secrets for our little niche industry where I've kind of tried to just share uh, some of the tools of the trade for people that are lawyers that want to get in this industry, if you will, because, uh frankly, vendor selection is really, really critically important. I mean, it is in any industry, but it's especially critical here because if you're going to, and I'll give you an example of of the kind of capital and what it takes to be in this industry. We invested about $5 million in transvaginal mesh uh, cases back in 2014 and 15. And we got about 3,000 compensable client cases. And I went to call, there's six defendants. And I went to call the defendant companies and they wouldn't take my phone calls they're like, you know, who's this guy? What's he doing here? And so, got a very prominent firm in this industry to uh, serve a settlement counsel for my clients. And so, we went and had them negotiate uh, the transactions. But I guess my point is, if you bring five million bucks to the table and you can't get a return phone call, you know, what's a guy with a hundred thousand bucks going to be able to do? So, uh, so there is kind of a a barrier to entry. Although, you know, people that are personal injury lawyers will spend. You know, several hundred thousand dollars, acquire a few cases and then and they'll give it to a leadership firm and then they'll do a fee split. So you can start very small. But if you're going to, frankly, go into this industry full time, it really takes a lot of capital. And, uh, you know, sure.
0: Cojones. <laughs> sure. Well, you know, what's the uh, no risk it, no biscuit. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's to, biscuits around here as long as they, they don't get too hard in the meantime. <laughs> understood. Well, what type of marketing program does it take to spend $5 million on to acquire 3000 clients? I mean, we're talking print and social media and radio. I mean, just every, or you, you got to be blitz and everything for something like that, right? Yeah. I mean, some people will go just very strategically. And, but to your point, I mean, going back over the last,
1: you know, 10 years, really, About 2015, 2016, prior to that, you know, people, the most efficacy in advertising really was still linear TV. I mean, it was just, you know, broadcast TV and and put it out there and get clients. 2015, 16, it really started shifting, you know, to digital, all the online uh, channels and everything. And so to your question, and I don't know the exact numbers, but I would speculate probably, 80% is in digital and SEO and SEM, and probably 20% is in in traditional TV. There are certain torts that still work pretty well on traditional, like, for instance, this Camp Lejeune I just mentioned. That probably will do well late at night with a bunch of vets who are sitting up, can't sleep, and and y'all watching the TV. But really, we find uh, the most efficacious opportunities really are the digital because, you know, you could, because for instance, you could go geofence the VA hospitals and, and target, you know, whoever's coming in and coming out of those hospitals these days. So that's, you know, we think that would be a much more proficient spend of the capital as opposed to just, you know, throwing it against the, the TV wall. Um, but, you know, but when you watch TV, like there are a couple of firms that are in the mesothelioma business and you'll see. You know, day after day, they're MISO commercials. There's only 3,000 mesothelioma diagnoses every year, give or take. And so, but each case, frankly, is worth a lot of money. And to advertise and get a MISO case on average will cost anywhere from 45,000 to as much as 85, 90 grand, one case. Wow. Yeah. But so, you know, combat earplugs, those were running anywhere from $500 at the height, probably got to $1,500 for a case. Roundup cases were, you know, were from two thousand to the height they got as as expensive as six thousand dollars to get a client.
0: So if you want to get a thousand clients, you got to go put, you know, five million bucks out. So yeah, it, it, you got to put the money out. I mean, and <laughs> then you got to, then you know, and I hear you getting into that. So capital, you know, on the front, knowing what you're doing, and then waiting for the money to come back to you on the long term, and you know. Too many people today in today's world, like you're talking about how business and job opportunities have all shifted and changes. There's this, you know, instant gratification and this fear of missing out society. Waiting seven years or eight years for a claim to settle sounds like an eternity for some people. They're like, I'm not even going to be in the industry or with that firm anymore by the time this settles.
1: Yeah. And, and to great point, And an even bigger point is think about managing client expectations, because to your point about instant gratifications, okay you know, here, here's my paperwork. When am I going to get my check? And so it's like, well, you know, this is going to be a long ride. And so, so Frankie takes a great team communicating with them, keeping them informed of where we are and what's going on in the process. And so, but over a three, four, five, six year horizon, you know, people get tired of that. And so uh, it goes back to, you know, if you can't, have the right team members who have the empathy and, and will have the conversation with the clients, whatever, you know, you're going to be in trouble because, you know, frankly, your license is on the line. If somebody doesn't think you're representing them properly, that, you know, they can go file a grievance with the state bar. So, you know, think about having 10,000 clients to represent, you know, that, that can keep you up at night.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: You know, So managing client expectations, making sure you've got the right team members that they have all the information and, you know, technology they need. So, uh, yeah, so there's an art farm. I, mean, I mean, quite honestly, this is, on one hand, it's a real simple business if you pick the right torch. On the other hand, in terms of the operational components of this business, it's one of the most difficult businesses to manage because you've got this long duration, long
0: horizon, and you've got to manage these client expectations all the way down the road. Sure, how do you go about doing that? Uh, do you do webinars and updates or email out? And- we'll, we'll send uh, if there's any update on their individual file, they will get
1: a phone call or some prefer text or emails depending on method communication they prefer. We will do quarterly updates on a given tort that we'll send all the clients that, that are under that tour. But if it's anything specific as it relates to their individual case, we'll actually reach out to them directly and, and give them the updated information. reminds
0: me a little bit of that movie, Erin Brockovich. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Totally. Well, you know, she's still around. She's a spokesperson for
1: some firms on occasion.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, that movie made her famous, made her a big deal. It did. It did. Yeah. (laughs) She, uh, yeah. I mean,
1: she really is. She's still alive and kicking and still represents,
0: um, the face of of some firms. It works very effectively because to your point, she's a household name. Yeah. Yeah. As you know, she made, um, she, that role that she played in the movie for anybody that's ever seen it certainly showed, you know, the types of things that maybe a big corporation might do to some of its employees in the sake of chasing profits and yeah. you know the fact that they don't ultimately want to be held liable for it and it took somebody like her in that movie to show you know the compassion that you, you know you should have for those people in those situations but the the time and the effort and the roadblocks and everything that got put up in between and you know you said something earlier in the conversation and i think corporations have changed you know back in the day there was pride and building a product that lasted forever or that helped your customers. And I think today, unfortunately, the way that many companies look at their products is they design them for functional obsolescence. And is it just good enough to solve the problem for a certain period of time to get somebody to have to buy a new one? And that's just unfortunate that we've started to, to take that mindset to maximize profits instead of maximizing the quality of the customer experience, which is not what we're trying to do today.
1: Well, you know, and I look on one hand, this has been a great company, but you know, the one that I look at is Microsoft. I mean, they're you know, their software never has worked properly. I mean, but they were brilliant. They got people to accept something less than stellar, right? I mean, think about the times you I mean, and it's better now than it was, but boy, when they came out with, with some of the Windows versions, you know, you'd sit there and watch it just spin for <laughs> for hours. So uh, but I mean they They did a great job of just, you know, iterating and building it on the fly, if you will. So, but no, but you're totally right. I mean, it's like, you know, the speed of business is so fast that I think companies feel compelled. They've got to go protect market share and get out in front of it, whatever. And so, you know, I mean, I don't think, I don't think anybody sits there and purposely necessarily says we're going to go cut all these corners, but I think just the practicalities of business is having people feel they, they've got to go, go ahead and launch and and get it out there, you know, and look, there's some things in the tort world that allows companies to put things in mark to market in, in the medical and pharma area that they really haven't done the testing protocols that have to happen. So that's how some drugs get out there that really, frankly, can hurt a lot of people that we didn't necessarily know about. So, um, but it, it is fascinating. I mean, look, it's, this has been a really challenging chapter in my life, but it's a, it's a really fun one because I've really enjoyed, uh, you know, meeting a lot of people, seeing a lot of people making a difference. And it's been fun. I mean, look, we're, you know, our industry was really behind on technology, but people are starting to put a lot more money into the technology side of, of what we do. And um, frankly, people in this industry made so much money, they kind of didn't have to worry about it. But but uh, I think we're seeing more and more uh, technological advances in terms of the way the way we go out and prosecute the cases. But, you know, one of the things I leave your uh, clients and associates with here that maybe listen to this is, you know, this the litigation funding world is is an alternative investment class. And frankly, Wall Street really likes this industry because, you know, uh, you know, our case is monetized no matter whether the stock and bond markets are up, down, sideways, you know, and, and, you know, right now everybody's chasing yields and don't know where we should be. Right. I mean, you know, you don't want to be in bonds because interest rates are probably just ready to go through the roof and you're, you know, you've got nosebleed on where your equity portfolios are too. And so where do you want to be? And so, you know, the uh, litigation funding world uh, is an alternative investment class that, um, Gives and some of the funds are providing you know mid team returns, so it's pretty outsized returns relative to what we think. If you adjust for the risk factors, we think that's a pretty good return for people. So
0: sure. Sure. Yeah. You're starting to see a little bit of lit, lit finance popping up, you know, as, as opportunities. You didn't used to see it, but I do see it every once in a while now. So, yeah. And once again, completely non-correlated to interest rates, stock markets. I mean, right. you're basically just betting on the fact that a case or a basket full of cases have a more than likely chance to be able to settle over a certain time period. And that the return on that is going to be, you know, the juice will be worth a squeeze on it. So, but, Exactly. Uh, exactly. You know, Yep. Understood. Yep. Understood. Well, Terry, we're kind of running up towards the end of our time today, but I appreciate yep. everything you've shared. You know, for the people that are interested in here, I don't know if you have an online or a social media presence or whatever, but how would people go about finding you and learning more about what you and your firm do?
1: Well, one of the best places would be to go to mass tort institute.com. And uh, like I said, we've got, if somebody wants to learn more about this, this space, we do daily updates on where different torts are and everything. And uh, if somebody really wants to read my book, it's an easy read, uh, <laughs> uh, but if you want to learn about this space, I've got a book, Mass Tort Secrets, and you can get it on Amazon or you can get it at our Mass Tort Institute website. But uh, yeah, it's a fun world that we you know, we're just this little cottage industry, but we try to
0: make a difference in people's lives. Yeah, good. Somebody's got to hold the corporations accountable when they don't look out for the people. We're trying, buddy. <laughs> well, we appreciate what you do. Well, well, Terry, well, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Um, everybody, this was Terry Duncan. Terry is a mass toward attorney, serial entrepreneur, and basically the guy that created Donkey Kong. I don't know what you heard, but that's what I heard. I, <laughs> I did I, heard. I did know the designer. I met him. Interesting. There, there you go. There you go, the designer <laughs> of Donkey Kong. So oh, yeah. um but thanks again for attending today. This was uh, Matt Chancy on the Tax Alpha podcast. And uh, until we see you again next week, thanks so much for listening in.
1: Thank you for listening to another episode of Tax Alpha Solutions brought to you by Matt Chancy. We hope you enjoyed listening to this week's guests and insight. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing wherever
0: you listen to podcasts.